and welcome to the Yoga of Resilience podcast presented by Vera Bhava Yoga. I'm your host, Kelly Golden, here to guide you in an exploration of yoga and its relationship to resilience. I'm a writer, yoga teacher, dedicated practitioner, and exhaustive thinker, and I've been practicing and studying yoga since 1995 and teaching since 2003. This podcast follows my exploration of Sri Vidya Tantra and its direct application to our lives in all situations, on and off the mat. Through contemplation, conversation, wondering, and experience, we unpack the ways in which resilience is synonymous with the path and practice of yoga, and the ways that both practices support us in showing up whole and alive in the midst of hardship and challenge. Most of these conversations were recorded live with current Virabhava Yoga students, and you can find yoga asana practices affiliated with each episode on our website, virabhavayoga.com. These practices and conversations are guideposts on the path to living a resilient life. If you would like to explore with us more deeply, check out our programs at virabhavayoga.com and practice with our teachers online and in your area. In this episode, I explore the practice of self-reflection as a support and sustaining force in resilience. I talk a lot about reflection and why we resist it. I also explore the primary tools to an effective reflective practice, patience, courage, silence, and willingness. Reflection is a practice that empowers. It asks us to dare to be less fragile not unbroken, not healed, but less avoidant, less anxious, and more willing. And these things are the recipe for resilience. Enjoy. So today's topic, and maybe that's what drew you here, is reflection. Um, it's springtime, have you noticed? I don't know if it's springtime where you are, um, but where I am in the world, it's, it's that tease. I'm in uh, the south, southern Appalachians, western North Carolina mountains, and it's a tease. We all know it's too good to be true, but we can't help ourselves like frolicking in the almost 70 degree weather and the, and the little flowers are starting to pop up out of the ground and um, the buds are starting to come out on the trees. And if you've done your time, awesome, I'm glad you're here, Deanna. If, if you've done your time uh, in, in the southern part of the world, then you know that uh, spring comes and then leaves. So it's bound to happen. I don't imagine uh, that we're going to enjoy this beautiful weather for much longer. But while it's here, um, I'm really excited to immerse myself in the sunshine and relatively warm temperatures. Um, I think it's supposed to be 100% chance of rain and 40 degrees tomorrow. So it's not going to (laughs) last. And that's okay. Um... And because it's coming sort of out of the edge of winter and into this transitional time, um, reflection has been really big in my life. Uh, I'm not sure 
how much you subscribe to the way that the planets and the stars impact your life, but we just came out of uh, Mercury retrograde, and I feel like we came, we're coming in hot into this one. Like, Mercury went backwards, I felt really reflective, Mercury went direct on Sunday, and then just, like, dominoes, everything is just really intense and really fast. Um, which I appreciate the way that we're impacted by forces bigger than us. I sort of hang my hat on that truth. Um, and sometimes it's overwhelming. And so I've been thinking and, and writing a lot about, re about reflection as a way to be resilient. Um, so I'm going to start today by, with a quote, which I don't usually do. It's not my thing. Um, but this seems to be really... Pertinent. So this is from a book called, uh, oh, I just went blank. Uh, the Body Keeps the Score. You guys know this book? Um, and by Bessel van der Kolk. And it's a great book about uh, somatic practice and, and healing from trauma through uh, understanding how trauma impacts your body. Um, we're not really going to talk about trauma today. In that way, I'm not a trauma expert, um, but I do hope that I'm giving you really, really good resilience, um, at least contemplations to sink your teeth into. So from the body keeps the score. If you breathe quietly into your body and you feel your bodily experience, even when stressful things happen, you can notice that something is happening out there and you can say, oh, that really sucks. That's unpleasant. But you realize that something is not, that that something is not you. So you don't necessarily get hijacked by unpleasant experiences. What we have learned is what makes you resilient is to own yourself fully. I'm going to say that last line one more time. What we have learned about what makes you resilient is to own yourself fully. So this is the nature and purpose of the talk that we're gonna have today is about self-ownership um, and reflection as um, the way that we can own ourselves fully and the way that yoga has been teaching us and encouraging us to own ourselves fully since, um, since its practices became available. Um, yoga in so many ways, and if you've hung out with me in, at all, uh, this is a repeat, but yoga in so many ways has, has very little to do um, with what we recognize as yoga today. Um, it, it has always incorporated and enveloped an embodiment practice, but it has never been just asana. It has always been a bigger... Um, more expansive way of connecting with the truth of who you are. Um, to know yourself fully, to own yourself fully, to connect into the truth of who you are, that is, in essence, what yoga is all about. And uh, the asanas, or the postures, has, have been important for us to understand and recognize um, gaps in our knowledge, Right? And we're learning now after a, a, a pretty big uh, span of time where we've become incredibly disconnected from uh, what one of my teachers calls 
the storehouse of our impressions, the storehouse of our experiences is our body. And we're coming out of a, of a sort of long, dark night of, of forgetting that our bodies hold this innate intelligence. And, and part of that coming back into awareness is that we are rediscovering the power of getting on our mats and moving our bodies and creating forms and shapes and filling them with breath and prana. So that's exciting, but in, in a lot of ways, as things tend to do, especially in the dominant culture of North America, uh, the pendulum has swung really far, right? Maybe, maybe way beyond uh, what's real and into sort of uh, appropriate, appropriated, potentially redefined understanding of what yoga asana is. Um, to the point that a lot of people are coming to their mats and thinking that um, yoga is only what they do with their bodies on their mats. And so the first myth I want to bust is that's not what yoga is, but what we do in our asana practice is a huge piece of uh, the power that yoga has. So yoga in its essence or in its nature is a reflective practice. It says it everywhere. Um, there aren't a lot of texts that include asana, what we, the shapes and forms that we um, use to move our body on our mats. Um, not a lot of the texts of, of yoga that we're studying in our, in our modern Western yoga include those postures. Most of your training programs are not um, diving into the Hatha Yoga Pradipika uh, and some of the more classic asana texts. Um, which is some of the only places where asana exists as we know it today. When, when the teachers of long ago talked about asana, they, did, they talked about sitting in self-reflection. Asana in Sanskrit literally means seat. Uh, to take a seat uh, is the active form of it. So when you were called forth to do asana in the Sutra of Patanjali, maybe you guys have studied that where the eight limbs are, um, when asana was lift, listed as one of the limbs, it was never meant to be down dog or warrior pose um, or cobra pose. It was always just meant to be the seat that you take to remember who you are. Right? And that seat has evolved in, our, in the asana practice that we know to look like, can we remember who we are when we take the form of a downward-facing dog? Can we remember who we are? Can we rediscover or reckon with? And that's the, what I'm going to posit today, is reflection is a reckoning. And most of us don't do it because it is a reckoning. Most of us don't enjoy um, sitting with the truth of who we are. So we don't do it. And then the, the result of that is that we understand ourselves to be what others reflect to us, or we understand ourselves to be only what we are in relationship to the world that's not us. Right? And what the yoga, what yoga says is we're missing a big opportunity here, y'all. We're missing a great and not terribly difficult way uh, into anchoring and resilience. Right? So when we can learn and willingly step into um, 
being resilient, being willing to see the truth of who we are, then a lot of what happens is, is we don't even realize it's happening. We're not, we're not doing a step-by-step program to become more loving, to become more forgiving, to be more um, buoyant in times of trouble. We're not creating systems necessarily that are designed to have all of these effects. However, when we choose to be fully present and really know who we are and be present with the truth of who we are, then all of those things are what happens. It's the result of our own self-reflection. So reflection in so many ways is the, the gateway, if not the experience of resilience. And that reflection or that inquiry is also synonymous with, it is the same thing as yoga, right? So maybe you guys already know this. How many of you guys have a reflection, a self-reflection practice, a practice where you look in at yourself and, and question the truth of who you are? A lot of your cameras aren't, yeah, okay? Some of your, yeah. A lot of people don't because it sucks, right? Because when we do a self-reflection practice, we have to look at the stuff that we don't like about ourselves as much as we look at the stuff that we love about ourselves. And that looking at the stuff that we don't like about ourselves is often really uncomfortable, right? The first thing that rises when we sit in a self-reflection practice, a lot of times, especially in the beginning, is the desire to distract ourselves Right? Or shame for reflecting on an experience that we participated in. Even if that experience, my, my 16-year-old was telling me um, that she was having a hard time falling asleep at night. And I was talking to her about it. And she said, well, as soon as I lay down and close my eyes, the stupidest things, I replay a script of things I did when I was eight uh, she gave the example of uh, turning her head to the side while she was walking down the hall at school and running into a, a post. <laughs> and it was, you know, embarrassing for her. Um, and she's like, I think about that when I close my eyes to fall asleep. And, and we, we do that when we avoid reflecting on our experiences. And, and what I would say is digesting and integrating our experiences through that reflection Um, They just cycle through us and they can be the most mundane and silly and ridiculous things that have no lasting impact on our lives and somehow they still create the same anxiety, the same shame, the same difficulty that we felt in that moment, right, of embarrassment as an eight-year-old. We can, we can replay that almost to the exactitude as if it was happening in the moment, when we close our eyes to fall asleep 10 years in the future, right? So one of the things a self-reflection practice does, one of the beauties of what yoga is all about is it helps us to digest the, what, what might be from an outside perspective minutia, but from an internally experienced perspective is anxietyful, is shameful, is, is difficult, right? Stress-inducing. So in a very simple way, um, the outcome of self-reflection is we digest these experiences. But so much of what we get from reflection is the same reason that we avoid it. Because nobody wants to feel that. 
right? My, my daughter, my 16-year-old my daughter does not want to feel the shame and embarrassment that she felt when she was eight and, and ran into the post, right? But the only way we can move through it and integrate it and digest it is to agree to, to agree only with ourselves. This is a solo practice, to agree to feel it, right? So reflection is not meditation, Reflection is not relaxation. So we don't go to yoga nidra to self-reflect. And we don't go to a meditation practice to self-reflect. In, in the yogic sciences, it is distinct. It's different than... Um, I, I'm, I'm going to really stretch the bounds of my authority and even say it's different than a mindfulness practice. Though mindfulness can be integrated into a self-reflection practice, self-reflection is distinct from a mindfulness practice in the sense that you are, it's active. You are encountering a sensation or a feeling or a memory um, or an experience, and it could be a painful one, it could be a joyful one, um, and making an active choice to go into this thing that has arisen with your conscious mind, right? So it's self-reflection is not passive. Um, it leads us to greater self-understanding and that is a rocky path. Most of the time, the idea of self-understanding sounds really great in theory. But then when we actually start to do the work of understanding ourselves and we start to walk the path of that, we encounter a lot of things about ourselves that maybe we're not comfortable with. We encounter our mistakes. We encounter our difficulties. Um, part of that is because those are the things that bubble up in us over and over and over again. Those are the things that are on that cycle of repeat, right? We talked last month, um, if, you, if you listen to the... Um, to the joy, I can't remember what it's called, the joy podcast. Um, we talked about we're wired for that negativity bias. So we're wired to feel all the gunk. And, and remembering the amazing things that we've done on a daily basis is a lot harder to access, even though they're right there with us, just as close as the difficult and, and negative and, and uh critical things that we've done, right? It's just harder to remember them. But if what we want to do is not be ruled by the tendency to feel thrown off course by our personal responses to our own behavior or our own experiences, then we must have the courage to reflect on the experiences that we've participated in. And that could be actively participated or passively participated. But whatever rises up in you as a discomfort is an invitation into reflection. Right? You can uh, definitely apply this to your joys too. I don't want to make it sound like it's just to work with the bad stuff. But it's effective when you work with the bad stuff. And most of us humans on the planet, we have no shortage of bad stuff to work with. Right? It's rarely initially a feel-good practice because 
as we start to under, as we start to reflect on ourselves, the first thing we have to do is we have to reckon with ourselves. The first thing we have to do in a self-reflective practice is recognize how we participated willingly or unwillingly, actively or passively in that thing that we're reflecting on. Taking ownership of our participation sometimes is really, really difficult, especially when we are in a place in our understanding where maybe we didn't have a lot of choice in the situation that we're reflecting on. But the point of self-reflection is not... Um, the same thing as therapy, right? So we're talking about yoga. We're not talking about psychology. And I want to make a big distinction. There might be a lot of crossover because uh, truth is truth is truth. It doesn't matter um, the voice that it takes. But in yoga, the goal is not to analyze. The goal is to recognize, Right. So whereas in, in Western psychology, there's a lot of um, trying to recognize or trying to reflect on where our, our triggers, our difficulties, our traumas come from. In yoga, it's just a matter of actively seeing them and feeling them, but not necessarily applying analysis or logic to them. So from a yogic standpoint, from a resilient standpoint, Reflection is a feeling practice, not a thinking one, right? And we're very, uh, our culture, our, our, our dominant culture of, of North America is a very analytical thinking culture. And man, I love it. I love to think. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I told some friends of mine last week that um, I like to uh, be like on a rotisserie and I just like to think myself into this like slow roast all the time, you know, um, thinking is great, but reflection is often, uh, sidetracked by analysis. Sometimes when we seek to reflect and, and integrate our experiences, analysis can take us into a completely different direction where we start again, doing that thing that often reflection is trying to remind us not to do. And we look outside of ourselves, right? So the point of reflection is spa, it's self. So Patanjali, if you guys know the Yoga Sutra um, or the eight limbs of yoga, Patanjali talks about self-reflection in the last three niyamas. So in the eight limbs of yoga, it's uh, yamas, niyamas, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, uh, dharana, Dhyana Samadhi, right? I don't think I left any out. Um, the last three Niyamas is also known as Kriya Yoga, and it's where Patanjali talks about what it means to be self-reflective. So he, the word for self-reflection, the word for reflection is Svadhyaya, and it, Yaya means, uh, Adhyaya means to reflect, and Sva means self, on self. Right? So a lot of what t- happens sometimes when we're working with our material is instead of focusing on ourselves, we'll focus on how we got here. And especially if it's not necessarily um, by choice that we are where we are, 
we can start to roll out of that self-reflective part and into um, more behavioral stuff and more um, family stuff and culture stuff. So self-reflection and, and the yoga practices is all inward. And when I teach the 200-hour training, which I don't do that often anymore, I have great staff of teachers that, that does that these days, um, you know, one of the hardest things, we ask people to sit for five minutes a day silently. It sounds so simple. Right? Just sit and be quiet. Initially in the 200, we don't even call it meditation. We're just like five minutes a day, just sit and be quiet. And it's the one thing that people abhor. To just for five minutes sit in silence. So many people feel as if they're being eaten alive from the inside by their own mind when they take away all the distraction and they choose to sit in silence. And that is a part of the reflective process is the very first thing that happens when everything goes quiet is your mind goes on overdrive. Your mind gets really, really loud. And that isn't a mistake. It's not, an, it's not an indicator that you're doing a reflective practice incorrectly, right? For if anything, it's quite the opposite. And when your mind amps up and the decibel level rises in your intensity of thought and distraction and experience, that's when you know, oh, I'm finally in this self-reflective practice, right? I'm not going to dive in in this talk today about the differences between reflection and meditation um, or reflection and pratyahara relaxation. But just know that if you're doing a true self-reflective practice, the mind needs to get loud because you need to hear all of the content that needs to be reflected on. Right? So the point of a self-reflective practice is to continually calibrate your compass arrow inward. So many people, I, I'm, I'm, the mind is boggled by how many apps are on the market to fill the space of silence so that you can feel quiet. I am blown away with how much noise we are investing in to find quiet. Isn't it funny? I mean, maybe not funny, haha, but funny still. That we're creating, we're, we're having all of these ways to get our minds quiet that are simply distractions, right? So you'll notice, and maybe this has happened a lot, it's, it's been a, a truth for me as a yoga asana teacher for a while. I haven't used music in a long time. Because when we get in our bodies on our mats, music takes away from what surfaces. Music is a distraction from our experience. And most people like music because it is a distraction. And I want to offer that reflection isn't distraction. It's quite the opposite. It's why it's so challenging. What happens 
when the discomfort of a simple, maybe not even um, incredibly impactful situation arises in your thought space, what do you do with that? Most of the time, and, and the more uncomfortable it is, the more difficult it is, the more um, related to, to trauma it is, the more desire we have to oh, push it away, the more uncomfortable it makes us feel. And a reflection practice says, don't push it away, go into it. Step into the discomfort that you're feeling. That is the point of yoga. So when you are practicing yoga, really practicing yoga, different than asana, different than just moving your body through uh, postures, but when you're really practicing yoga in your asana or on your cushion, you're finding this amazing doorway into self-reflection, svadhyaya. Now, one of the things that Patanjali says, another thing he says is in addition to um, our observances or, or part of our, our, our practice being based in self-reflection is that you're going to feel really uncomfortable. He says it in the sutra. You're going to feel really uncomfortable. And if you're really going to self-reflect, you're going to have to sustain the discomfort to do it. So the sustained discomfort is called tapas. Now, it does translate loosely as heat. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been reflecting on my kids' inability to fall asleep. You know, we're parents. We, we want to we help our kids sleep better. Um, and one of the things that happens when you feel embarrassed or shame is you blush. Or you get hot. Like that heat is really real. So to call tapas heat, when what it really means is sustained uh, willingness to stay in whatever has arisen. Um, it's not inaccurate to call it heat. Right? Because it's like fire sometimes. When you, when you reflect on uh, a conversation you had with a coworker or with an intimate or with a family member, gosh, especially in these times, right? And you think about that conversation, heat rises, right? Maybe it comes out as anger. Maybe it comes out as rage. Maybe it comes out as shame. Um, but it, you feel it. That's the tapas. So Svadhyaya says... Once you cross the ring of fire, once you step into that heat, don't stop. Keep moving, but be patient. So in self-reflection, we move slowly. Self-reflection isn't oriented towards achievement. There's nothing to achieve. It is active, but it's not actively searching for an outcome. That oh, intensity of stepping into that heat of your experience and being willing to continue to query it, to continue to pursue it and provoke it and poke at it makes so much. It's almost a discomfort 
generator. So when we practice this, we, we have an entire uh, system of practice for Svadhyaya, and it's called Vichara. And it means self-inquiry. And I'm looking on my, on my screen. There's one person with us today who has done it. And it, at least with us, maybe you've done it, uh, other, some of you've done it with other people, but I know that there's one person that's in our class today that has done it. And nobody can line up behind Vichara and say, well, that was fun. Let's do that again. Right? It means self-inquiry. And I want to say it means exhaustive self-inquiry. The point of this self-reflection practice is to go into your experience, your felt sense experience, until you have digested it. Now, I want you to think about what it takes to put a piece of food in your mouth before the food even, t- even just thinking about it, I started salivating. Apparently, I'm hungry. But just that salivation that happens before you even put the food in your mouth is pre-digestion. Right? Then you chew the food. And you continue to digest it. Then you swallow the food. And it's squeezed down your esophagus to your stomach. Continually digested until it gets into your stomach with all the acid. Continues to be broken down. And, and it's a fiery process. Right? If you study Ayurveda, they, digestion is a fire. Right? It's not a calm, sweet, lovely thing. It's a fire. And self-reflection is no different. It's a digestive process of you digesting you. Right? And so it can be the you that you want to be for sure. But mostly what we have to digest is the you that maybe you feel less comfortable with. The you in process. The you on the path of learning. So that's why forgiveness and love is an effect of this experience of self-reflection is because if you truly digest the you in process, the you that gets things wrong, the you that makes mistakes, the you that feels ashamed, the you that feels rageful. If you really digest it, then what comes on the other side of that is that you love yourself more. You start to develop understanding for yourself. So we've got this big dialogue going on in the world today about the need for people to understand each other. And I don't disagree. Good Lord, everybody could use a lot more understanding of everybody else. And perhaps the reason we don't have it is because we're not taught to understand ourselves. We're taught to look like this, to act like this, to make these grades, to perform this way, to do this have this level of profession, have this level of achievement, have this, do that. We're not taught to turn inward and ever ask ourselves, is this thing that I have been doing and that I continue to do even right for me? Is it even really true to who I am? And we're terrified as a culture to ask that question, maybe a little bit less now than we were even three years ago. 
But it's so scary to ask that question because what can then happen is like a domino effect. That if we dare to recognize that the you that we are right now isn't really the you that we desire to be, then everything that we have created, everything that we participate in, everything that we do, then also has to go under the microscope and be digested. And no, it's such an overwhelming thought that you would have to re-digest, and I don't want to say re, it's not re, because most of the choices that we've made, and I don't know that it's wrong, so don't hear me criticizing it, I don't know that it's wrong that most of the choices we made we haven't really thought through fully, and that might not be a full true reflection of who we are. Maybe that's part of the process. Maybe that's part of the path. We are, humans are in process. There's not an end point where we just start getting it right. So if that is the goal, if you want to self-reflect your way to being perfect and right, it's not going to happen. But I want to offer that the truth that that's never going to happen is liberation. That is freedom if you discover, if you realize that the point of digesting your experiences, the point of digesting yourself is never to become perfect, but only to become more you, more real. Then maybe it's not going to be so hard to tiptoe into those uncomfortable places. I guess we'll see. <laughs> it's one of the reasons, if you, if you read the Instagram post I posted yesterday, it's one of the reasons that uh, the very number two thing I put that you needed for self-reflection is courage. Can we be brave enough to look at ourselves? Not necessarily brave enough to go around the world pointing the fingers at the things that aren't right. And there are so many things that aren't right with our world. But can we be brave enough to point that finger inward? And to see and learn that when we see the things that aren't right, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. The, the most liberating force in yoga is self-reflection. It is svadhyaya. Because until we take ownership of the truth of who we are, what did Bessel van der Kolk said? What we have learned is what makes you resilient is to own yourself fully, fully. Until we take full ownership of ourselves, the, the desire for the world to take responsibility for itself is going to keep, it's going to remain out in front of us. Because we are a part of this world we're creating. And I'm a, I'm a teacher of Tantra. Um, of which yoga is a part, but Tantra is a bigger philosophical system. And one of the things that, that Tantra teaches is the macrocosm is the microcosm. So what you are inside is what's happening outside. And, and the most powerful thing that's happening in our world today is that we're starting to wake up to that. That all of the things we're fighting against 
also have a tight grip on us inside and maybe in ways we never recognized. I always talk about uh, colonization is like, um, oh, I was going to say an octopus. I'm trying to remember um, the name of the television show. It wasn't a television show, the Netflix show with the, with the scary dark thing um, that has all these tentacles, right? Like the colonization understanding has tentacles everywhere. And part of liberating ourselves from these overlays, these cultural overlays that are keeping us in hatred of each other and locked down from joy and, from, and keeping us in these places of stress and fear, part of this comes from we have an entire culture, and it may be an entire multiple generations, where self-reflection is off the table completely. No, no impetus to turn inward, right? And, and this generation, our time right now, people are waking up to that. But every time, what Tantra says is every time you hit a bump in the road out there, it means that that bump in the road also lives in here. So we have to keep going in and in and in to understand those obstacles, those edges, those discomforts, those fears inside as they have taken up residence as us, not just in us, but as us. And then as we do that, slowly but surely, and, and this is the part nobody likes because we, we live in the world that we want things to, I mean, and it's been a long time. I don't disagree. It's time for shit to get right. But getting right takes a long time, and it might mean that there's always some wrong in it. So how do we meet that? How do we meet ourselves when there's always some wrong in it? And that, the essence of that is a self-reflective practice. So it takes courage. Because the very first thing that happens when you start self-reflecting, the very first thing that happens when you choose an uncomfortable situation that you would rather not think about and say, today I'm going to actively think about this, is it brings up all kinds of fear. All kinds of reasons why I shouldn't even look at that. Right? And a lot of those reasons get put on the people around us or put on our history or put on... um, are the dysfunctional relationships in our lives. And we, ha- we struggle to understand that those dysfunctional, uh, not all, but many of those dysfunctional relationships are part of our creation. That we have contributed to the dysfunction in which we sit in. So we have to move courageously and patiently. This is not overnight work. I've been doing it personally for 20 years. Six years, gosh, old. Uh, and it's, I'm still doing it every day. One of the most powerful tools in a self-reflective practice is paper and a pen. I don't even know that you need anything else. I can, I'm going to bring you to your mat and bring you through practices and opportunities to find uh, spaces of reflection in your asana But this is where it happens. 
where you bring all of that stuff to bear for yourself, with yourself. Exhaustively. Recycled paper. I told, my, I told my friend the other day, when I pass away and you come to my house to burn all my journals, you're probably going to need to get a permit from the fire department. There's so much. Because everything is an opportunity for reflection. We have created a yoga culture. Maybe not we. There is a yoga culture in existence right now that has been designed to move you away from your discomfort. One of the first things I ask uh, 200-hour students in training is, do you come to yoga to get into your life or to get out of it? And most people come to yoga to get out of their lives. It's like the super posh uh, 21st century alternative to bellying up at the bar. Right? We don't wanna, we're not going to drink our troubles away. Now we're going to asana our troubles away. And we're going to make the room really hot. And we're going to move really fast. And we're going to turn the music up really loud so that we don't have to think about how bad our day was or how painful that conversation with our intimate was or how we yelled at our kids or whatever it is. Right? So we come to yoga as another way to distract ourselves from this process of getting to know the truth of who we are. The beautiful part about yoga is it won't let you go there completely. It'll keep drawing you back inward. Right? It creates, by the nature of shape and form and energy, it creates vulnerability. At least it creates the perfect um, foundation for vulnerability to be accessed. And the more you do it, the harder it is. It's like uh, the more you fly, the more likely you are to lose your luggage. The more asana you do, the more likely you are to have that vulnerability tapped because asana is a way to shape and move energy and our bodies our cells are storehouses of our experience. Your body does not store my experience. My body does not store your experience. We are self-contained storehouses of our own experience. And a self-reflective practice gets us in the habit of knowing what our experiences are. And not asking others to take responsibility for those experiences. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I feel like every, every time I say something, I, like one toes slides up onto the soapbox of complaining about modern culture. I'm gonna try to pull it back and not, and not go there. So when we use courage, and willingness, so that's the other piece. So this term in, in yoga is called icha shakti, willpower. We have to willfully go into self-reflection. Most of the time, we won't stumble into it because our habits are created around avoiding it. 
right? Um, to put it very simply, and I said this for years in my yoga classes, if you don't know if your hips are out of alignment, who does? If you don't know if your knee hurts, who does? And whose responsibility is it to know? Right? I, I have a bit of a, an edge around our yoga teachers going out and telling everybody exactly how their bodies should be. Because the only people that know how their bodies should be are the people living in them. Yoga teachers do not have the authority to know how your body should be. And if they're telling you something that seems radical to you, it's simply an opportunity for you to get to know yourself better. Not to fix something that's broken. Because you're not broken. Everything you are, every impression, every experience that you've had has combined to make the perfectly unique and unrepeatable thing that you are. Now get to know it. Because only when you get to know it can you own it. And only when you own it will resilience be the way that you live your life. And that, y'all, is worth it. And the more you go out into the world and live resiliently, the more people are going to follow your lead. And when they say, and they will, how do you do that? You say, I don't know. I just spend a lot of time reflecting on myself, (laughs) right? And that's not selfish. That's service. When we don't know, who we are, what we cannot see. This is, there's, a, there's a Carl Jung quote, I can't remember. But when we don't know who we are, what we cannot see about ourselves, we'll start making our choices and decisions. And it will impact everybody. And you know this, have you ever, I recently had this experience where I was my mother. Have you done this yet? Are you old enough to be your mother yet? Whoa, that was crazy because I've worked 43 years on the planet to not be my mother. And then one day, there I was, my mother. And she is a lovely human, and I adore her. But never wanted to be her. But that's a part of myself I've never looked at. And this is the game. Then you get curious. When those things come up that are unexpected, when those things come up that you maybe don't feel like they're exactly who you want to be or how you want to be moving through the world, then you get to get curious. Where did that come from? How did I get that way? How often is that storyline playing out in my life? Then self-reflection becomes, I don't know, exciting, maybe even enjoyable. That's an edge. I don't want to go to joy but it becomes an opportunity. Yeah? What else? Oh, when you cross that line from avoiding discomfort and seeking distraction into being really real with looking at yourself, with willingly going into your stuff, then you become more powerful. So in Tantra, they say, Uh, two things that apply to the self-reflective practice. Um, They say way more than this, but for the purposes of our time running out, this is what I'm going to say. The first thing they say is your wound is your weapon. 
So until you can see the places that you're not seeing, until you can see your shadows, until you can see the hidden parts of yourself, it doesn't matter whether or not you can see them. Those weapons are being wielded, but until you can see them, you will not be wielding those weapons skillfully. You'll be walking around the world, flailing your swords, and then shocked at the people that you're beheading. How did that happen, right? But when you can start to see those things, then you can gain skill over those weapons that you wield, right? The other thing um, that, that is applicable in this, in this understanding of self-reflection is the tantric practice uh, plays with these icons, right? This iconography of... Um, gods and goddesses that are very specific to um, the style or type of tantra that you study. And the primary teaching is that to worship these uh, aspects of divinity, of which we all have every one, right, according to tantra, to worship these aspects of divinity, we must become them. And how can we become the things that we don't recognize that we are? How can we find or access the power that's available to us if we don't dare look at the whole of ourselves? Right? So, to be self-reflective is to be powerful. It asks us to dare, and this is an edge, so I apologize beforehand, trigger warning. To be, self-reflective, to be self-reflective and not be a power, we have to learn how to be less fragile. We have to learn how to not let the world or the way that we respond to it break us down so that we can continue to use those invitations from the world and the invitations from our responses to keep going in and keep becoming more powerful. Let's see, what else do I got? Self-reflection, I said this one, so I'm going to say it again because we're going to move into asana. It's very applicable. Self-reflection is not psychology and it's not a thinking practice. It's a feeling practice. Now, I was in a really deep and interesting discussion last week about uh, the need to compartmentalize that, which is, a, uh, again, I, I want to say it's a very dominant culture of North America thing that, we, that thinking is here and feeling is here. But the truth is, it's here. We're never not thinking and feeling simultaneously. For most of us, we have cultivated the process, the thinking process, and pro- mostly not all, not you guys, because you're here for yoga, but a lot of the world has spent a lot of time trying to not feel. That's the not feeling is even what's brought people to yoga, and they're shocked and hopefully awed and and smitten with the fact that yoga gives you access to your feelings. But thinking and feeling aren't independent of each other. So when you move into a self-reflective practice, there's a lot to feel. 
And we use our mind as a tool to deepen into our feelings. It's really that simple. Uh, And it only needs, I'm really oversimplifying this for the purposes of time and and the the level of conversation that we're having today. Um, It really only needs one word. You only need one tool. Well, you need, these are, in yoga, this is called artha, your tools, right? Your tools and means. Uh, I would say silence, courage, willingness, patience, paper, pen, and the question, why? Why do I feel like that? Why is this bothering me so much? Why did I say that? And there is no answer. Every time an answer comes, it's simply an invitation to ask the question again. That is inquiry. Compassionate inquiry, gentle inquiry, patient, courageous, willful inquiry. But the inquiry never ends. The best thing about yoga is it simply a practice of asking deeper questions. And you never, there's a a teacher I studied with briefly whom I love, love, love. He said the reason that, that yoga is a practice of playing our edges, the edge of what we think that we know. And the reason that yoga can be a lifetime practice is you never run out of edges. As soon as you think you've got something figured out, you guys know this, what happens? As soon as you're like, I got this, the universe is like, oh yeah? What are you going to do with that? Right? As soon as you feel that you have achieved some sort of mastery, start inquiring about it. Start asking why. Why do I feel this way? What is happening that has led me to believe that I'm at the end of my path? And then you'll just open up a whole nother treasure box of awesome inquiry, awesome self-discovery that will allow you to gain the power accessible by knowing yourself fully. It's a gift. It's something to celebrate. Yeah? Hi, folks. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you would like to access the asana practices affiliated with each episode, please check out our webpage, www.dirabhavayoga.com backslash podcast. And take advantage of our online classes, programming, and apparel by using the discount code PODCAST2021, all uppercase letters, to save 20% off everything on our website. That discount code is PODCAST2021, all uppercase. Thanks for listening.